Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we are releasing a special episode from a project that I undertook in 2022 that I called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. My intention was to take all of the best clips about one particular topic and put them together as a masterclass to be released behind a paywall with a subscription-based service on Patreon. Well, we didn't have many subscribers, so I'm breaking these episodes up and releasing them here for free so that they can make an impact and hopefully help some people out there. Today's episode was taken from the second series, all about ketosis and the ketogenic diet. This is part two from the second episode, all about doctors and medical professionals discovering and leveraging a ketogenic diet, not only with themselves, but also in practice. We always appreciate any feedback that you might have, so feel free to leave us a comment on YouTube or on our website at myboundlessbody.com, where you can always book a complimentary 30-minute session with us at any time. Cheers and enjoy part two of this two-part conversation all about the ketogenic diet. Our next few clips are going to be with medical professionals who ended up facing legal challenges after bringing some level of ketogenic or low-carbohydrate diets to their patients, literally medical associations bringing up trials and charges against these people is absolutely insane. So we're going to start out with Dr. Eveline Boudoir-Wa. I practiced my French so hard before I did that introduction with her on episode 329 of Boundless Body Radio. I think I still butchered it, but I just love her energy and her passion, How, why she got into medicine, how she was practicing before discovering low-carbohydrate and ketogenic diets, and some of, the, some of the challenges that she faced afterwards. So let's go to that clip with Eveline. And uh, my goal was to uh, become a family doctor and to to, um, to do a work that is significant, that can impact powerfully, like significantly, positively the lives of uh, people, you know. So I went to medicine and it was, uh, was pretty hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And um, at, at some point I thought uh, I wasn't going to make it, but... Um, I thought I was going to have to give it all up because it's, it's really hard. But when I finished med school and I started practicing as a family doctor, um, then it got really depressing. Then I thought, okay, I did not waste one whole year doing science classes. I wasted nine years of my prime years, my late twenties and all my thirties going to med school because the work that I do now is is not great. It's not helpful. It's not making a difference because a family doctor nowadays is somebody who needs to see patients every 10 minutes, every 15 minutes or so. They come in with all kinds of complaints and you hardly have any time to to, to discuss with them. You end up prescribing pills and pills and pills and more pills to cover the side effects of the first pills you prescribe and patients are not getting any better and they, it's... it's um, like it's it's really a working in a sickness and, and it wasn't what I imagined it would be. But then I was pregnant at the time with my second child. And so I took a maternity leave, obviously. And during my maternity leave, other doctors um, told me about this great book that was called The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. And they said to me quickly, oh, you know, you can eat fat and like lose weight. And um I, to be honest, I was postpartum, so I was I was hoping to lose a few pounds. So in a, in a really like close-minded, selfish way, I read that book for myself just to lose a few pounds. But um, I discovered, uh, well, what I read in my book basically changed my life, uh, my personal life, but also my professional life. 
So whoever hasn't read yet the obesity code by Dr. Jason Fong, he's a, a Toronto nephrologist, so a kidney expert, a kidney doctor. And um, so that book really, um, it, it was, it, it was the, uh, the door that opened for me into the world of uh, metabolic health, nutrition, low carb, fasting, um, hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance and all that. And it was amazing. It was amazing to read that book, but it was also really uh, frustrating. Actually, I was quite mad. I read that book and I was, I was really pissed off, if, if I can say that. I was really mad. And uh, part of my brain is still occupied. A few neurons of mine are occupied 24-7 at being mad because um, ever since I read that book, because I had just, just finished med school and residency. And basically nothing that is written in that book was taught to me. I never learned about hyperinsulinemia. I never learned about insulin resistance. I never learned about eating carbs, what eating carbs do inside to your metabolic system. What is really type 2 diabetes? What is really obesity? What is really fatty liver, hypertension? Um, all those diseases, the chronic diseases that are related to, um, to insulin, therefore related to lifestyle um, uh, habits. I never learned any of that. And I had just graduated. So I was, I was quite mad, but, um, you know, sometimes you read something and you're like, Oh, it sounds really good on paper, but does it, you know, does it hold true in reality? Does it actually work? So I thought, well, I'm in maternity to leave anyway. So I, I, I have a, a bit of time to, to try it and see what happens. So I, um, designed like a two week plan for myself and I applied that, you know, to the T and I did it. Um, I did it religiously, uh, perfectly for two weeks. And seriously, I had results right away. Uh, my energy was better and my baby was not a sleeper. Like he, he's still a bad sleeper, but he was a terrible sleeper back then. So I was really drained, really drained from energy. And, uh, you know, when you're really, really tired for all kinds of reasons, you tend to eat more. So I was gaining weight in my, my postpartum, despite the fact that I was breastfeeding. So I was gaining weight. And all of a sudden, I wasn't sleeping anymore. I wasn't exercising anymore. I wasn't doing anything different except what I was eating and what I was not eating. And that um, I started losing weight, but I started to get more energy. I started to get more mental clarity. I started to feel better, to be in a better mood. And so I thought, okay. You know, this makes sense in theory on paper, but it also seems to be working for me. There is something there that, you know, I need, I need, I need to explore further. And if it really works the way it seems to be working, then I need to be able to tell my patients about this. They deserve to know. So I reached out to uh, this, uh, Dr. Jason Fong and uh, his uh, clinic director, Megan Ramos. They, they are in Toronto. I'm in around Montreal. So it's just a six hour drive. And I said, I, I wrote to them and I said, please teach me how to do this with patients. I need to learn this medicine. Because um, I, I felt that this type of medicine would be a medicine that would make a difference, that, that would make, you know, that would bring positive changes that wouldn't be about sickness, but would be about health. And uh, to make a long story short, they both said, okay, come, you know. So a few months later, I had my spot because a lot of people wanted to train with them. Um, they closed their clinic. So their clinic has been closed since uh, December 2019, just before the pandemic hit. But uh, back in those days, uh, um, I mean, uh, they, they had people, observers and learners every week almost. So a few months later, I had my, my opportunity to go to Toronto and spend a week with them. 
and it was life changing. It was amazing. It, uh, I, I always said I, I could never unsee what I saw there, unlearn what I, I learned there. I could never practice medicine the same way ever again after spending a week with them. It was a like, completely uh, life changing. I mean, their patients were coming in happy skipping you know like almost singing or something they were smiling and they were happy to come and tell Megan and tell Jason how well they were doing how their blood sugar had gone down again how they've lost another few kilos again and how they felt so much better and it was one patient after the other after the other after the other coming in and feeling better and we don't see that in medicine especially with chronic diseases Nobody who's type 2 diabetes comes to my office to say, hey, I'm doing better. Oh, I'm doing even better than the last time I saw you, doctor. I just came in to tell you how better I am. You know, I don't really need anything from you. Um, no, that never happens. In regular medicine, family medicine clinic, patients come in because they're not doing well. Their blood sugars are higher than they were. We need more medicine. We need more, you know, blood sugar lowering. Their tension, their blood pressure is higher than it was two months ago. They've gained, you know, and they're they've gained weight again, and they're they're feeling depressed and discouraged and all of that. This is what we see every day, all the time. People who are not patients who are not doing better, but not their patient. Their patients were doing much better, and and so after I finished my week of observation with them, I said I need to do this medicine. And I, I have the strongest feeling that this is why I went into medicine. I am, I want to make a difference. Prescribing pills will not make a difference, but doing, teaching patients to do this, this, this will make a difference. And so that's how I founded the Clinique Reversa in uh, January, 2017. And um, it's a, it's a not-for-profit, but it's not free because I have, we have to pay for, you know, the, the, the nurses, the kinesiologists, the, the psychologists, the, you know, the admin assistant, the coaches, um, uh, everybody who's involved in that multidisciplinary uh, team. But uh, I don't make any money from it. It's actually, it, it takes time away from, from, you know, doing regular medicine, but I love it. It pays me a hundred times in a, on a, you know, in different level in a different way. It pays me with, um, gratification of knowing that, you know, professional satisfaction of knowing that my patients are getting better. Since we founded the clinic in 2017, we've had approximately 2,000 patients uh, come in for the six-month program. Um, so we have like a cohort of about 16 patients around every two weeks or so. So that's how I went from, you know, being a translator to being a family doctor, a miserable family doctor, to being a doctor who's uh, very much interested in biometabolic health and everything we can do to change our lifestyle habits, to, uh, to, to take control of our own health and to get better instead of getting worse. Wow. What an amazing story. We are so grateful for people like you in the world who really are so passionate about something and care so much that the dollar amount is much less important than that feeling at the end of the day, knowing you made a difference in somebody's life. I absolutely, yes. absolutely love that. And I love Jason Fung. I've followed his work for a long time and he is so good at explaining the science and especially when it comes yes. to things like insulin resistance and how insulin works in the body. And, and I love the way he approaches that, but I also love the way he approaches things in the way that's like 
kind of common sense. Like, you know, as much as we, you know, love the studies and love the science and love to get all the data, there's also like, let's just use our brains and think about this. And he has this like really sarcastic and kind of snarky way of like telling people like your body is not stupid. Like, why are you putting more carbohydrates into a person that has a problem with carbohydrates? And like kids, kids don't need like all of these snacks and Gatorades to go play soccer. We never had that when we grew up. You just go play. And so I love that he takes that approach when he explains things and I, I couldn't agree more about obesity code if you have not read it put it on your list it's absolutely amazing do you remember some of the biggest like principles that really blew your mind about that book uh, anything that had to do with what is insulin what does it do inside your body what is hyper insulinemia so when you have too much go, going around in your blood and what is insulin resistance and everything that it does in your body. He doesn't go over everything that it does in your body, but it's a good enough intro that you understand that the more insulin you have in your body, the sicker you are. Um, uh, uh, Bickman goes into a deeper dive into insulin resistance and uh, the trouble with insulin in his uh, book, Why We Get Sick, which is another excellent book. But I think Jason covers enough um, of, of what is insulin, what is, yes, exactly, what is insulin resistance. Uh, to 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 be an eye opener, and and I I do not understand how come that is not in the radar of most faculty medicine. We do not get that taught. And I read that book in 2016. I graduated in 2015, so it's not even like oh, you know, back in the days, 30 years ago, when I did my degree, we didn't know anything about insulin resistance. We do. We know about insulin resistance. We don't care. We pretend it doesn't exist. We pretend it's not important. We don't even teach it in, in the faculties of medicine. How crazy is that? Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. So I had the opportunity to work on a metabolic cart for over a decade. So I was actually measuring people's metabolic rates. And in, in particular, we would do it while people were exercising. So we get VO2 scores and, and calorie burn rates and fat oxidation and things like that. But we'd also do resting metabolic rate tests. And so, you know, over time, we would find if somebody did a calorie restricted diet and they did a lot of exercise, chances are over time, their metabolic rate would reduce. And so we would get used yes. to telling people like, okay, whatever your rest metabolic rate is you need to eat at least that many calories to keep that metabolism high and that's the way i understood it for a long time until fasting started to get a little bit more popular and i, yeah. I could not explain this mechanism people would come in let's say based on their age height weight and gender they should have had a resting metabolic rate of about 2,000 calories people who did fasting would come in to do the test we would measure their metabolic rate not at a normal level not at a lower level but a much higher level. I remember one guy in particular, 2,600 calories, 600 calories burned at rest more than what it should have been. And I said, wow, like this is really good. Your fat burning rates are really good. Like this is great. No wonder you're losing so much fat and weight, but now you have to eat 2,600 calories or else your metabolism is going to crash. And I, I'll never forget. He looked at me and he was like, I can't, how, what do I do to eat that many calories? Do you want me to go back to eating like soda and Twinkies? And I was like, yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense either. And it wasn't until I came across the obesity code that I realized what was going on. These people are burning more calories because their body is finally allowed to burn Burn the calories, not just coming from food, but the calories they've already stored from food in the past. Yeah. And that was the only way I could ever explain that. It made so much sense. Exactly. Jason says all the time, like if you are storing body fat and most of us are, let's face it, if you're storing body fat in your body and you're fasting, 
why would your body go burn your muscles if, you know, like your body is not stupid to do that. Your body wants to burn the extra fat that you have in your body. It's there for that. It's there to be used for energy when you need it. But you need to be able to have access, metabolic access to your stored energy, your stored um, fat in your body. And, and that makes all the difference in the world, that kind of switch that your metabolism can do. And, it, and that's important to, to teach it to patients because if, you, if you're going to um, go hypocaloric and restrict and eat low fat and eat small portions every two hours and, and blah, blah, you're going to tank your metabolism and you're not even going to lose proper weight because the, you've, um, you've inhibited the, the switch, the metabolic switch. Whereas if you do, if you do low carb, you do keto, if you do fasting or a combination of all of that, then you allow your body to go dig into um, your fat reserve. You, you enhance lipolysis and you can get great results with that and definitely no reduction in a, in a basal metabolism. Definitely. Yeah, that's right. So and you then, get, you, yeah, sorry. I was going to say you get long-term uh, weight loss and maintenance because if, let's face it, anybody can lose weight. Like in two weeks, you can lose weight. You can eat like cabbage soup every day for two weeks. You'll lose weight. Are you going to keep it off? No, you won't. No, you won't. And it, will it be harder to lose weight after that? Yeah, the yo-yo effect of dieting over and over. All those diets are always, almost always hypocaloric. And that's how they make you lose weight. So you lose weight at first, but then your metabolism catches up. And then either your metabolism, metabolism catches up or your brain is like, enough with this you know, restriction and, and being deprived so much, I can't take it anymore. And you go back to your old habits and you explode. But either way, you lose weight, you plateau, and you regain, and you regain more. And that's the story of like 80% of the patients, uh, you know, who consult me for weight loss um, or metabolic um, health at the clinic. They've, they've done this yo-yo uh, the whole lives. And every time you go back up, you take a bit more than yep. the previous time, right? Yep. Yeah. So, so learning about that switch, learning about how to dig into your fat reserve to switch into lipolysis as opposed to inhibiting lipolysis. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I get that knowledge from uh, Jason Fung as well. I did not know that before that. Yeah, it's really absolutely amazing. You mentioned the cabbage soup diet. One of my favorite diet books I've ever come across was called The New Cabbage Soup Diet. And I was like, there's a new one now? Like, are you acknowledging the, the old one didn't work? Like, what is a new one going to do? Is it more cabbage? Like, what are you doing? Um, but yeah, we saw that all the time on our metabolic carts. We would measure people. And it was almost exactly the same as that Biggest Loser study they did. They released in like 2016, yes. where you are heavier than when you started, but your metabolic rate is still very, very low. It doesn't necessarily necessarily recover really well just because you start eating more. It's really terrible. Yet we still tell people the same advice. You need to eat less and you need to move more, but that's causing yes. that long-term effect. Like you said, if we just took that same formula, calories in, calories out, and looked at it backwards and said, how do we get your body just to burn more calories being yourself? And people would lose weight effortlessly without hunger. We see it all the time now, but it's, you have to look at that differently. Yes. Absolutely. Wow. So, okay. So there's such an incredible Delta between your experience, the way you were practicing medicine before, and all of a sudden finding this new way of doing things. You spend a week with these guys, see everybody jumping around and skipping because they're actually, you know, improving themselves, getting off of medications, all kinds of amazing results. So of course you're going to be super stoked and excited to go do this on your own. What was that experience like when you started to bring this back into your own clinic? 
Well, uh, back in the days, it still is the case, but less now. But back in the days, 2016, as I started building a clinic, I was met with a lot of skepticism, obviously. Like, honestly, Casey, if I told you, hey, you could lose weight by eating more fat, you know, it sounds ridiculous. Everybody knows that is not how you lose weight, right? Everybody knows that eating fat will make you fat, right? So it, it is so ingrained in our brains now that nobody... Nobody thought, well, hold on, we've been eating low fat since the 80s and look at us now. How, how's that working out for us? You know, obviously not working out really well. We, As a society in the States or in Canada, we've never been fatter and it's uh, our children have never been fatter than they are now. You know, so obviously eating less fat hasn't worked out, but we as a society, we haven't, I think, reached a point where everybody goes, okay. This is ridiculous. Eating less fat to lose weight is ridiculous. We're still not there, I think. But um, I arrived with my ideas that, hey, eating fat will make you lose fat and fasting is good for you and it's not dangerous and it won't tank your metabolism and all that. Um, yeah, a lot of people were skeptical. Um, it's controversial, obviously. That's not what's taught in med school. It's definitely not in our guidelines. Um, and um, it... it even just treating diabetes, you know, because my main focus wasn't necessarily obesity. It was, but I know that people who eat properly will lose weight anyway, most of them anyway. So I thought, let's focus on reversing type 2 diabetes and, and they'll lose weight anyway. So my clinic was mainly about reversing type 2 diabetes. But even that, that's controversial because everybody knows you don't reverse type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is chronic and progressive. We learned that in med school, it's chronic and progressive. The only thing that you can do is try to manage the best you, try to manage it the best you can and try to ward off the complications as long as possible. But eventually you will fall apart into pieces because your eyes will go, your kidneys will go, your toes will go, and there's nothing that can be done about it, which is completely false. It's, it's, it's a fallacy, and it, we're still saying that to patients um, all over the world. Not still, 2022, we, we are still saying, the us doctors, that type 2 diabetes is chronic and progressive, but it does not, and it doesn't have to be. And, and this is something that needs to be known, needs to be told, and we need to scream it off the top of all the roofs in the world. Type 2 diabetes can be reversed, and most of the complications of type 2 diabetes can be stopped and some of them can even be reversed. But anyway, so me saying, hey, come to my clinic, give me money, I'll make you eat fat, and you'll reverse your type 2 diabetes, and you will lose weight, by the way, right? It was, it was crazy. It was craziness. So, um, so yeah, a lot of uh, colleagues, a lot of doctors, a lot of healthcare professionals uh, thought I was completely crazy. Some of them were quite vocal in the social media about that, but um the worst part was uh, was the complaints that I got, and I guess that's where you want to be headed to to, to head with me. Um, the um, I got some official complaints at the the college, the College of Physicians of Quebec, which is the body that delivers our permits. You know, to practice medicine, I need a, in Quebec. I need a permit, and the college is the one that uh, delivers and keep my uh, keeps my uh, my permit valid. Right. So I got so it's like the highest instance of um, uh, highest body of governments for for doctors. So I got two official complaints and um, 
And it was very difficult, let me tell you, because I felt in my heart, I felt like I was doing something right. I felt I was helping people. I felt I had found a way to uh, make a difference. And I was making a difference because we were getting tremendous results. It was unbelievable. What we were getting was like almost like a miracle because we nobody sees that. Nobody sees somebody on insulin after 30 years of being on insulin, doesn't need insulin anymore. And go like somebody who will, not everybody can go back to not being on insulin. I don't want to, you know, make people believe anything, but we had quite a few patients who were on tremendous doses of, uh, tremendous uh, amount, a uh, number of units of insulin and were able to fully reverse that. Um, some of them were able to reverse it to the point where they needed no medication, not even metformin, not even like the most basic uh, drugs. And they went back to having normal blood sugar level. So this is like, it's, it's like a miracle. Nobody ever sees that unless maybe with uh, bariatric surgeries. But other than that, just from dieting, eating properly and um, no, you know, that's like unheard of, unseen ever. So, so anyway, so, um, so we were getting great results and I was quite um, happy doing this type of medicine. It was, I wasn't doing it full time. It's like one Friday every two weeks. The rest of the time I did regular uh, family medicine I worked in a jail um, also, so I did stuff like that. But every other Friday was my favorite day of, you know, making a difference on this planet. And and so it hit really hard when I got my two official complaints and I had to take an attorney and I had to prepare my defense and I had to appear in front of a sort of a jury. There were three doctors who were um, investigating, you know, questioning me and um and it was uh, it was a nightmare. It was a total nightmare. And I cried the whole time, uh, ugly cry, you know, cry, cry with snots and all that and not being able to control myself, like total ugly cry in front of all those people. And uh, at the end of it, my lawyer said, I have in my whole entire career, I have never seen anything like this. This was horrible. And this was the longest um, interview or whatever that I've ever seen. And uh, I was terrified. Let me, Casey, let me tell you, I was terrified, not that they would take away my license, but that they would tell me, doctor, you keep your license, but you can never again practice this type of medicine. That would have been the worst. That would have made practicing medicine not worth it for me anymore. And I said that to my husband. I said, if if they forbid me, if they prohibit me from doing this medicine, then I don't think I want to be a doctor anymore. I'll, I don't know. I'll. I'll be a housewife for, for it's not myself. <laughs> I'll do something else. I'll go back to trans. I'll go back to translation. I'll train for something else. But I, I cannot now that I know what I know. Now that I've seen what I've seen and learned what I learned, I cannot go back to pretending. I cannot go back to just popping pills, you know, prescribing pills and uh, seeing people for ten minutes and not telling them they have the power to improve their health, their metabolic health. It's in their hands. Let me teach you how. You know, like just to say, oh, your blood sugars are high again. We're going to increase your insulin by 10 more units. See you in three months. No, that is not worth it. This medicine is not worth it for me. So that was the scariest part for me was would they keep get um, make me keep let me keep my license, but take away my right to practice this medicine. My right, not my right, but take away my my uh, my uh, option to do this this medicine. And uh, at the end, it, it took a long, long time. But at the end, they did not. They, um, I was cleared, but but it took a long, long time, and I was really scared. I was, I, 
you know, and uh, I had nightmares about this for years afterwards. Uh, so like total PTSD, like a post-traumatic syndrome disorder. Definitely, definitely. You know, since then I've had quite a few other complaints. So um, now I'm a bit less stressed. I'm still very annoyed when I get them, but I'm less stressed about it because I know what I'm doing is right. And I know that the, there's so much evidence and science nowadays that really, I don't think they, they could, you know, they can attack me uh, to take me down. And I don't think they can, but they can still annoy me. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> and they do. They do. <laughs> wow. Well, th- I just think it speaks so much to your character that, that again, like your passion is helping people. It's not making a paycheck. You could have just gone back and, and said, okay, you're right. I'm sorry. I won't talk about this. I'll just practice medicine. You could have, you know, kept writing yeah. prescriptions and made a good paycheck and a good living for the rest of your life. Our next clip takes us down to South Africa with Professor Timothy Noakes, who went through a very famous trial um, all about low carbohydrate. We're going to let him tell that story here in this clip. But here again is another medical professional who had to go to trial to defend himself for telling people that it's okay to eat a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet. And ultimately, they managed to find a tweet that I had said and they took that tweet to the Health Professions Council, which is the, which is the organization to which you have to, if you're a medical doctor, you have to be registered with them in order to be able to practice medicine. And they, they took the complaint to the HPCSA, and they say I should be charged. And eventually I was charged with the seven words in the tweet, which said that you should wean, I suggested this lady wean her child onto, oh, sorry, I suggested that mothers wean children onto a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. And by the way, those are the weaning guidelines for all organizations around the world. And within, within six months, I was charged with dangerous promoting a dangerous diet that would kill millions of children. And, and that, was, that was how they managed to do it. And they, there was collusion between the dietitians. They were also being driven by industry. And we, we found the, the markers of industry were all over my trial, including all the persecution witnesses. Most of them had direct context to, connects, connections to the International Life Sciences Institute, which is a front for the carbohydrate industry, for the sweet drinks, wow. for some of the pharmaceutical companies. Wow. And it's been, it's been absolutely discredited, this organization. And their goal is to take out scientists who oppose the sale of carbohydrates to the to the public so <laughs> the trial was based on a tweet that you suggested that somebody eat real food wean a child on exactly real, right. real food that that is ridiculous so you show up to this trial with your defense and you bring every expert around the world i mean you flew in all kinds of experts from all over the place and you're citing all these studies what what you mentioned the defense had one study that they mentioned. What other, what was the defense like? What did they say? Well, the defense was hopeless because the lady, the, the chief, chief prosecution witness, was the lady who wrote the South African dietary guidelines, which say you must provide real food. You know, you must eat, and it said to the effect that children should be weaned onto animal foods at least once a day or more if possible, or as often as possible. So now she has to defend her statement that she never made it. And she was hopeless. I mean, she was utterly hopeless. And 
my my legal team were well, I mean, they were just brilliant. But Rocky Ramdas, who's a medical doctor, he took her to he took her to task, and he he embarrassed her too terribly. And it was the first time in her life that, as a seventy seven year old professor, or a seventy five year old professor, she'd ever been challenged because that's what doesn't happen in nutritional dietetics. You never get challenged. You just speak the same on mythology and and hope that it'll be true. Or Wow, that's so crazy. So what were the stakes? What what would have happened had the prosecution won, for example? Like what, what was on the line? Okay. The line was that I would have lost my my right to practice as a medical doctor and I would have been fined. But much worse than that, my whole credibility would have been finished because that's all they were looking for. They just wanted to say that in future, if I ever spoke about anything, they'd say, well, of course, he was dis- discredited by this, the HPCSA. He's a quack. The HPCSA found him to be a quack. And that's what they were looking for. And there was a big movement on social media in this country led by certain people who we know to try and make me look a quack. And that that was also going on behind the scenes. So had I lost, that's what would have happened. But more importantly, it would have meant that no doctor in South Africa would ever again be able to say anything in public about a health matter without risking being going through the same process that I went through. That, that's part of what they were aiming to do because it's complex, but basically there's medical information and there's medical advice. And medical advice is you give to a patient and then you form a patient-doctor-patient relationship. And that's always an answer to a I question. What should I do in this case? What, what treatment should I follow? That's an I question. And if you, as a doctor, answer that question publicly, you're at risk of being said that you're in a doctor-patient relationship. But you can't fulfill the doctor-patient relationship because you can't examine the patient. So then you leave yourself open to all sorts of complaints. Now, what they tried to do, I had answered a wee question. It was about moms and babies. And I had given medical information. Now, what the HPCSA was hoping to do was to blur the difference between information and advice. And had they won, anyone, no one would be, ever be able to say, again, anything, medic, give any medical information in public. So, for example, this is a stupid one, but if a, if a person was to ask you a question, so, doctor, should, I, should runners stretch before they run a marathon? You couldn't answer that question because they blurred the distinction and now you're giving medical advice to a patient. And, that, and therefore, you're at risk of being charged for giving wrong advice. And so they would have had absolute control. And can you imagine what it would have meant in this COVID-19? If anyone had said, well, I don't agree with the way that COVID-19 is being managed in South Africa, whoops, before the Health Professional Council, losing your ability to practice, costing you millions of, of dollars. That's what would have happened or could have happened. So there would have been Orwellian. It would have been George Orwell. 1984. Wow. They would have had absolute control of everything the doctors could say. But of course, that, I didn't realize that when we started it. I, I was only thinking of, of did not, I didn't want to be remembered as a quack for the rest of my life. Sure. I mean, your entire life, your entire life of work, like all the studies, all the books, everything that you had done building up that department in the university, but then learning that this was even bigger than that, so much bigger than yourself, like all the doctors... Yeah. 
in the future is so crazy. And I, I, I've been so excited to ask you this question. I think I've heard the answer to this, but I, I've been wanting to ask you this because I think this is so funny and so telling. Is it true that you had an extra advantage in the afternoon when the defense would go eat whatever <laughs> they would eat for lunch and the prosecution would eat what you guys eat for lunch, which is typically low carb? And is it true that your prosecution would be much more sharp in the afternoon? <laughs> yeah, the, the, you're quite right. The prosecution would start falling asleep. And <laughs> so, but it was very funny because one afternoon, it was at about three o'clock in the afternoon, and, and they used to stop at four. And uh, the Joan Adams, who was the chairperson of the of the committee that was considering the case, she said, Well, I think we must go on until five o'clock. Is that okay? So our chief our chief uh, legal guy said, we're all on the low-carb diet. We're all in ketones, ketosis. We can go all night if you want to. <laughs> but, but there's one more little point, that the chief prosecution lawyer was very overweight at the start of the trial and with diabetes. By the end of the trial, he'd lost 20 kilograms and his diabetes was in remission. That's amazing. Now, why, what do you think happened to him? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We're just, I'm just so glad that you decided to fight and that the fight was bigger than just yourself. I, I think that's so interesting. And I think it's an interesting point because I remember, you know, when I was doing a lot of endurance sport, I was, you know, racing road bikes quite a bit. I had to eat all the time. I was hungry all the time. Yeah. I couldn't go two or three hours, you know, between clients without grabbing a bar or a snack. I had to take yeah. a nap every single day. So I know what it's like for the, you know, the defense, you're, you're tired at three in the afternoon. Of course you need a nap. It's so, it's such a, it, it's so relatable because I know, I know how it felt to be on the other side of that and, and how much better it feels to be on a lower carb diet. I'm sure you can relate to that. We are now going to go to the island of Tasmania and hear from Dr. Gary Fetke and his wife, Belinda. I was very, very, very fortunate enough to interview both of them at the same time on episode 314 of Boundless Body Radio. I can't recommend that episode enough. Both of these guys have the craziest stories of things that they had to go through. Just simply, you'll hear from Gary, just simply for recommending that the hospital not have sugar on hand and watching Belinda go into action to be able to do the research, to be able to defend her husband and everything that she found out about the Seventh-day Adventist Church and their current involvement in our nutritional recommendations. This story is absolutely bananas, as I tell them. You have to go back and listen to it. And just to clarify this, I had to write this down to make sure I got this right. The Fekis Fs um, that he references here in a second is Fekis fu Fructose-Free Fucked Up Fungating Foot Folly Fridays. Wow, that is a mouthful to say, but I wanted to make sure you got part of that. He's going to explain the whole story here. So let's go now to Gary and Belinda Fecky. It's a sickening feeling amputating limbs. That's it. I mean, and particularly in diabetes, which is an unnecessary operation. You know, it, it's years in the making by the, you know, of, of Poor dietary control, poor by, and I'll, I'll say poor dietary control rather than poor medical control because I don't think you need all the drugs that we're throwing at patients with diabetes. And 
these patients, these well, not sorry, not patients. They're people. You actually get to know them. It's not a one-off visit when you come along. They start with a little ulcer, then the ulcer gets worse, and then it becomes infected, and you're trying to treat that. And then you might be trimming a bit of a toe, and then you're taking off the next toe, and then the next one after that, and a bit of the foot, and then you know, ultimately, for too many, um, then uh, you, you know, you're taking off a limb, and that noise, and it is a thud into a stainless steel bucket, you can't get, can't get used to that. Oh. that, and, and, that and, and that was really um, becoming a, a weekly practice for me just to be trimming bits of toes and feet. Not once a week, but, you know, I, I regularly have a couple of patients. And my, my Friday clinics at the hospital ended up being called Fetke's fun, uh, effed up Fetke's uh, fructose-free, effed up, fungating foot folly Fridays. There's a lot of Fs there. But essentially, you'd come along into the clinic and it, it, it literally a, a smell of rotting flesh. Now, I know that sounds disgusting, but when you keep seeing that week in and week out, and because no one else wants to take on these patients, it, it's, it's not, a, not a happy experience because you're in a, a no-win situation. And then when we started... That, that, that I had those patients in hospital and they were be, being given ice cream as part of the hospital dietary guidelines. For and diabetes. For diabetes. I went, hang on, whoa. It, it's, it's, it, that was the light bulb moment for me. And I said, will you stop giving it to them? I said, no, that's the hospital guidelines. That's the national food guidelines for people in hospital. And I've, I've been challenged on that, but I've also presented to the national hospital <laughs> food guide, food industry at their national meeting and I said I put up their guidelines they said that's not it and I said well actually this is what your guidelines are I gave them big hashtag mm. fail I was then invited to come back and speak two years later they couldn't cope with me 12 months <laughs> later but essentially when you're pointing out such a flawed process but anyway you know, literally my patients in hospital if I reduce their sugar and carbs and reduce their their and increase their protein, like literally coming into hospital, stop eating sugar, stop eating, you know, processed carbs, and we did. And I'd write on the medication chart two pieces of cheese and two eggs. I had to prescribe eggs to my patient because they weren't available. And so literally just by doing that, reducing sugar, giving them a little bit of protein, we're able to save toes and feet. That's incredible. So imagine what you then do, extrapolate that across the wider population and you start doing that on a at a guideline basis because most people, health practitioners in the Western world, don't want to step outside the guidelines. And the guidelines are wrong and they're actually causing harm. And that's – so if the guidelines are wrong and we believe they're wrong, and, in fact, I think they're energy-dense, nutrient-poor guidelines, then you've got to say why aren't they changing? Why aren't – why isn't – why aren't the guidelines following the science? And it's because there are vested interests in this in place since 1910, And that's where Belinda's work's just become so so critical because myself, you know, others in this space have been going blue in the face talking about science, the results, the, pa- the patient benefits, and yet literally the system doesn't want to know about it you know, or, or it's just starting to hear about it. Oh, that was sorry. 
they've been hearing about it, yeah. but they've been ignoring <clears throat> us. Yeah. Wow. That's stunning. You, I, you, you have been featured prominently, both of you, in this wonderful book, The Great Plant-Based Con by Jane Buxton. And she gives you, Belinda, all of the credit in an entire chapter for that research, which is quite extensive. And when you go back and look at the story of what happened in both of your lives over the last like 10, 12 years, there's it's bananas in so many different ways. No, we, we can't talk about bananas because <laughs> oh, no, the bananas are bad. Okay, oh, no. <laughs> too high fructose. <laughs> it, it's crazy. <laughs> it's just crazy what you guys have been through. And so let's let's kind of dive in there. You guys have been married for forty years, and Gary is is Almost. you know next year. <laughs> next year, awesome. That's great. Congratulations. Um, you, you know you're you're learning. You're looking around and learning that that people are getting the wrong food in hospitals. They're getting the wrong food recommended to them by the guidelines. Can you get, guide us along kind of what happened in your personal story? Well, well the, the guidelines are what determines what food is served in hospitals, nursing homes, schools, what children are educated in, as well as what's served to the, the defence forces and the prison. So they, they, it's an enormous spread of influence and these government bodies have sort of got to follow suit. And it's education and, for and, health and, professionals. And it's the it's been said, education for, for all health professionals. And I say what it is, it's generational education. Because mm. we, we do and we believe what our teachers taught us and we believe and they, they believe what their teachers taught them. And if it's in your textbooks and those textbooks, as it turns out, have been written by the food and pharmaceutical industry since 1910 and 1917, that's just continued to flow on because that was in the textbooks. But when you realise the textbooks way back were actually written by those who had, were conflicted by religious ideology and this belief that, um, that it was, uh, this was the best way to go, when in fact it was literally a religious belief, you know, based on the, on the visions of a prophetess and then that whole concept, uh, which is scary, that, the whole food pyramid, that that cereal and grain base, is really based on the concept of trying to stop us to masturbate. And I know that's a big leap, but when you go back, that's what happened. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church are the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic Church. They've been positioning themselves into our health education for over 100 years They've been writing the textbooks for the Western civilization, or Western you know, communities for, again, 100 years. And, and here we are today with an obesity epidemic, metabolic health completely out of control. You know, data out of the US only a few weeks ago, 93% of the US population are metabolically unwell. Yeah, and that's, a, no that's a 2018. <clears throat> that's still pre-pandemic. That's scary. Yes, and, and, and that's up from 88%. Right. Only a couple of years before. Right. So it, it is just, and it's no different here. I mean, we might be marginally better, but I don't think so if you really start you know, tunnelling down. So those guidelines, I, I call our processed food experiment is the biggest social experiment of the last 100 years, and it's failing. And so I, I better let Belinda talk a bit because this is her her wisdom and, and, and people sh really have to understand. And, and Belinda's contacted every day from people around the world to find out, you know, what, what's the networking going on. I don't think anyone should enter a debate 
until Belinda's actually done the research as to who she's who they're debating against. I've just been, you know, speaking in a couple of meetings, and it's just really, really interesting to know where the other speakers' conflicts of interest are, particularly if they don't declare them. Wow. Which is a big thing in Australia, right? You, it's a lot harder to find out conflicts of interest than it is even in America. That, that was surprising. I learned that from you guys. Yeah, I think the reason I got into all of this was because the cereal industry targeted Gary for talking about sugar. I looked at who was the expert witness that was brought in because Gary was investigated for four and a half years or investigated, sorry, for two and a half years and it took us another two years to get that determination overturned or just completely thrown out. And I just kept watching Gary and other low-carb advocates you know, starting to join up with this group, Low Carb Down Under, and create a bit of momentum. And I was watching them talk the science until they were blue in the face. And I thought, there's an issue here. The public are listening. Some health professionals are listening. But the rule keepers of the guidelines, which is what I, you know, the biased guidelines, I don't believe it was making any impact. And I thought, well, this makes no sense. So I just looked, firstly, I looked at who was the expert witness that was brought into Gary's case by the APRA Medical Board. And I thought, I had a bit of cognitive dissonance and I thought he must work for the sugar industry because why on earth is Gary, an orthopedic surgeon with a catchment area of about 120,000, we're one step away from Antarctica, like we're so far removed from the world, what sort of impact is he having? So it must be sugar. And the more research and the more research I did into this man, I uncovered the fact he was actually working for the cereal industry. So I thought, oh, okay, hadn't thought cereal, but of course, I uncovered some documents from this group called the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum. And they were four specific um, cereal industries here in Australia, but a couple of them are worldwide, of course. So it was Kellogg's, Nestle, Sanitarium and Freedom Foods. And these groups got this group got together each month to discuss strategies. Three months. three months, sorry. To discuss strategies around how to improve sales, obviously. And one particular set of documents were talking about the fact that their cereal sales were being harmed by advocates of low carb. And <clears throat> so I thought, all right. Susan. Cereal sales were down. <laughs> yes, That's what they cereal, cereal sales were down and the <clears throat> concepts of low carb were to blame. Yes. And, these and Gary was the only medical doctor at that time listed among 14 names. Only <laughs> seven. Seven. Yeah, yeah, seven. Yeah, seven. Congratulations. Seven congratulations. <laughs> well, I mean, part, we, we sort of went congratulations at one moment <clears throat> and then we went, oh, swear word four letters because this is multi-billion dollar industries international um, who have decided that we that I'm for targeting. You know, it says that's... That that's it, um, and if we were in other countries around the world, we might have been in feeling under greater threat. Um, some of my talks <clears throat> have been translated into different languages, and I won't identify those people. But people ask me, they contact us, can I trans change this into this language? And I said, fine. He said, but I need to do it anonymously because in our country, if I publish this, I might might be knocked off. Literally. And that, and brave young people, and it's it's easy for me to be brave from another country, but they're brave people. So actually, they felt so strongly that their country needed to hear that message that they trans started translating it. And it, I mean, I think that's fabulous. It's been able to be translated. But I'm I'm just amazed. I'm not amazed. 
it's not a conspiracy if it turns out to be true. That's right. And, and therefore there are major players here which have got huge amounts of money behind them and who also have this huge amount of ideological belief that that's what they're doing, they're doing the right thing. And that reach of the Adventist church <clears throat> into our dietary guidelines, you know, flowed right through to the recent review of the American dietary guidelines and the, and the people who are looking at the meat section or what they called the fat section, had were significant conflicts with SDA. But then we also have those people at a very senior level within the World Health Organization, the United Nations. Here they are within Australia. And, you know, and it's hard work for Belinda to find out where they are. But one of the good things is the Sunshine Act you have got in the US because if they publish anything inter internationally, they have to declare it. Mm. We don't have a Sunshine Act. We don't have a Sunshine Act here <clears throat> in Australia. Interesting. Wow. And we don't, we don't have a university here where they train medical students owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So, again, <clears throat> I've been able to connect a lot of my research through the fact that in America, you have a lot of educational facilities, um, training doctors, nurses, dietitians, um, owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I just, yeah, when I found this group of serial advocates targeting Gary, I, I, I often say the mama bear came out and I thought, how am I going to, how am I going to protect him? How am I going to give him back his voice? I'm fragile. Yeah. After two years, <laughs> two years. The medical board here actually silenced Gary. The determination was that his silencing from talking about nutrition to his patients, to the wider community, was lifelong, non-appellable in a court of law. And I, we just went, this is ridiculous. E How even if it was shown to be best practice. Yeah, even if it was shown to be best practice. So so, even if it was shown to be best practice into the future, which it is, I'm still not allowed, I was still not allowed to talk about it. And, and it's, if you think this, it's, it's stupid, I mean, I, I help people out with APRA cases. Every, I mean, I'm just so frustrated with someone's case last night. I think it's so unfair what's happening to her. But it's just, it's, it, it's, 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 petty. it's, no, it's, it's beyond petty. It's, it's <clears throat> I reckon they're dangerous because they're causing harm by restricting free speech. Wow. Um, and I, mean, I, I suppose we should just come back to you, to your listeners to say, why are we going on about the Adventist Church? But they effectively started the cereal industry of the Western world, the soy industry of the Western world, and the start of the alternate meat industry with huge links and ties to the startup of the stevia industry. So, and again, massive footprint at an educational level around the world, and particularly in the US and developing, developing countries, and particularly. The, the Blue Pacific, Polynesia, Melanesia, that, that sort of area there, uh, where they're actually tr trying to bring in the, the chip program, the, go back to more cereals and grains, which need to be imported to the populations of the world that have got the highest rates of obesity <coughs> and diabetes. So the top 10 obese countries in the world come from the Blue Pacific, Polynesia. Everyone says, oh, my country is more obese than the other. I always laugh about that, you know. <coughs> but, in fact, when you look at the figures, it's the top 10 obese countries in the world are the Polynesian ones and are nine of the top 10 for diabetes. And the only one that sneaks in at 10 is, um, is I think it's Kuwait because they don't have alcohol, so they drink lots of soft drink. Ah, wow. Uh, 
No, we, we think we might be fat and sick in Australia, but we look at the, those Indigenous populations. Mm. And what's happening is this, this um, pilgrimage of, uh, of, the, of righteousness from religious groups, but particularly the SDA, is wants to then take these people away from their traditional diets and move them towards a highly processed food diet. And it's, it can only have one, one, one effect, and it is. It's getting fatter, sicker, more obesity, more diabetes. Wow. And, and when, you look, when you look into those areas and start looking where the influence is, right through to a political level, <clears throat> and it's what half a dozen of the presidents and prime ministers of Polynesian countries are now Seventh-day Adventist. We are going to skip the pond and head on over to England, where we are going to hear from doctors Jen and David Unwin. What an amazing story these two have, both in the medical world, but in separate fields. They both discovered low-carbohydrate diets and started practicing them with their patients in a very unique way and in a very successful way. These guys are still doing amazing research. They're putting out their content. It's really wonderful. And this is another case where I was very, very fortunate enough to interview both of them at the same time on episode 146 of Boundless body radio. I think you can hear in their voices how much better their lives are practicing medicine this way and how they are providing hope to the individuals that are working with them. It's just such an amazing message. So let's hear from doctors Jen and David Unwin. Yeah, well, uh, it's quite an interesting story. It's probably about 10 years ago now, actually. So uh, it's been quite some time. And a few things came together, as they often do, to sort of spark this uh, this work that we've been doing. Um, one is probably my is my own story, really, which is one of a, a lifetime of uh, weight gain, weight loss, struggles with food, sugar addiction, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I stumbled across a book um, by a British GP called Dr. John Briffer called Escape the Diet Trap. I think it was 1 January, and I was feeling particularly miserable <laughs> about... Um, my weight, and I, I saw this book, and, and obviously the title spoke to me, so I, I brought it home, and then I would read bits out to David. It, it was basically, it basically was low carb, and um, John Briffer had sort of uh, discovered that for himself, looked into the science, and then written a lovely book, which was quite a nice sort of simple intro. And I was, I'm reading bits out for David, and as was my way, I thought, right, okay, this is the next, that you know, the next. Scheme. <laughs> I was always doing the latest diet scheme, you know, Weight Watchers, Slimming World, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I thought, right, I'm going to do this low carb thing. Uh, anyway, it was quite the uh, quite the revelation for me. Really, I did. I went cold turkey, as some people would have also done, and felt pretty grim for about eight days. But then the lights came on, and I felt amazing. And uh, I thought, right, this this is the way for me. And some of the facts that I was reading out to David about how much sugar was in bread and things like that. He was sort of slightly interested in. And then I'll let him take over in a minute because at the same time, he was going through a sort of personal um, crisis. crisis at work, really. Yeah. <laughs> over to you, David. Yes. So I was, I was 55. I was a senior partner of a medium-sized general practice and I wasn't really enjoying myself. It was just that everybody seemed sick and they were getting sicker and sicker. And I'd give them one drug and then I gave them another and another. Nobody looked well, really. That is until one patient 
a single lady uh, changed my life and the life of many other people. So uh, I'd looked after this lady for over 10 years uh, with her husband, actually. And I knew from the computer system uh, that she wasn't taking her drugs for diabetes. And that worried me. So I wrote to her and asked her to come and uh, see me. When she came to see me, I actually didn't recognize her because she'd lost so much weight. She looked absolutely fabulous. Wow. Uh, Far more than that, she was cross. She was very cross. And she was cross because she said, Dr. Unwin, you've been prescribing drugs for me all this time. And you know I have diabetes, but you, you never once told me that bread was sugar, that breakfast cereals turned into sugar, that potatoes turned into sugar. And now that I know that starch is sugar, I've been able to do without medication. I've lost stones in weight. So you were giving me those drugs quite unnecessarily. And she actually even wondered whether I was qualified. So I was scared and I, yeah, I was quite scared. And I, I thought I need to listen up. I need to pay attention. And that was the link between us and diabetes.co.uk that you mentioned earlier because she was on their low-carb forum. And to my amazement, there were 40,000 people teaching each other how to go low-carb. So Jen had been going on about the book. And I'd started thinking a lot more about why are people, why do they have diabetes? Is it a genetic thing or is it what they've been eating? And I I suddenly saw um, in sharp focus, my patients were ill because of what they'd been eating. And if we could help them to eat differently, maybe they could replicate what this lady had achieved. And now we've gone all the way. So I had never seen drug-free diabetes remission. I hadn't seen it a single time in 25 years of medicine. And um, as you said earlier, we've just celebrated our 100th patient uh, that achieved that. So up to that point, 10 years ago, we'd never actually worked together. We Obviously, I was a psychologist, Dave was a GP in the same small town, but we haven't actually done any joint projects. And that was something uh, as well that we were kind of interested to do, because obviously health psychology and medicine do go together really well. So we kind of united around this idea of, of trying to help the patients with diabetes at, at Norwood Avenue. And um, I was used to running groups, something I did quite a lot at work and was confident with, whereas most doctors and GPs, that's, that's not something that they'll do. But it actually works really, really well in this context of sort of chronic conditions and behavior change because everybody encourages everybody else. And um, it's, it's just a really nice um, way to work with people. So um, we, we just started with one small group and and. Kind of, kind of all the rest is history, really. So we started with about 15 people, I think, uh, in that first group. And some of them are still still joining now. We we uh, we're still run the groups now, and anybody can carry on coming, and, and quite a few of them still do after nine or ten years. Wow. What, surprises, what surprises me now, Casey, when I think back, is how really, why don't doctors think more about behaviour change? Because so many of the chronic modern illnesses are due to choices that we make, lifestyle choices. So it, it, we need to help people change behavior. And the experts in behavior change, of course, are psychologists. And what I had missed is that I was married to an expert in behavior <laughs> change. And uh, she was a bit neglected in that way because there she is an expert. 
And when we started mixing what I knew about physiology uh, and what I learned about diet and what, what Jen knows about changing behavior uh, and motivating people and giving them feedback, I think that is the power that we've unleashed uh, where you mix this, 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 uh, these two disciplines, psychology yeah. and general medicine, very powerful together. Mm. I mean, when I, when I hear your story and I follow you guys for so many years, I just, the, the word that comes to mind is synergy. You're right. Like it's a, it's a one plus one equals three kind of thing. You, you're right. It is very powerful and deep what you can do for these people when you combine those two things. I, you mentioned something really interesting and, and it's, it was all about practitioners taking the time to really sit down and think what they can do to, to have, you know, help their, their patients with behavior change. And I, I want to, I want to go back and like, ask you like 15, 20 years ago, why you didn't do that sooner. And I would suggest that it's when, when are you going to be able to do that? How are you going to have time to be able to do that when you can only see people like, you know, every 10 minutes, you're not paid in that, in that way, you got into the business to really help people. And you're finding that like, (laughs) it's really hard to help people when you're slinging pills at them. I, I totally, I can, I, I can really empathize with feeling like you're in this business because you really wanted to help people and it's not working. And, and that would be really tough. That's a, that's very difficult. Yeah. That's, I think that was what was dawning on me when I was 55 years old. And my perspective now is that the paradigm I was working in was take a history, examine patients with a view to what drugs do they need to sort them out? Not with a view to why is this patient ill? That's a different question. What drug might be a sticking plaster to the problem is so different from the question, of, but really, why are you ill? And I think now what Jen and I find is more and more conditions improve when we get the diet right. So we started off obviously thinking about type 2 diabetes, and then we went on to improving fatty liver, and then we noticed blood pressure was improving, lipid profiles, skin quality. And then more recently, uh, Jen particularly, is focusing on mental health because that seems to improve with better diet. And these are all conditions that I was previously using drugs for. And it's so um, exciting when we can use a lifestyle approach in the National Health Service. Um, so I think that's an interesting... cases around um, for doctors, they, they're just not trained in, in behaviour change. They haven't got any confidence in in that. So so the, like you say, yeah, they were kind of stuck. Most people are stuck because they've only learned one model. <laughs> then, uh, then that model isn't working because however many tablets you added into some of these patients... They, they were never going to be well people, as as, as David says. So, yeah, I think it's a matter of confidence and, and competence as well. And, um, you know, that's something we really hope to also spread. You know, David has the other doctors come and sit in his surgeries so they can see how he does it. He speaks, obviously, as you know, at lots of conferences. And um, we're involved in um, this charity called the Public Health Collaboration. And he has um, a Google group with how many doctors about four 400 health professionals 400. in now so wow. when we started over here in the uk um all those years ago uh, we were the only people doing it i think so um 
we've sort of learned as we've gone along, but now we're very much about trying to spread that knowledge and those skills um, more widely. And I think there is hope. I think the younger generation of doctors uh, are quite interested in in this sort of different preventative health lifestyle approach. It's interesting. It's a, a modern phenomenon now where we have what really this was a grassroots revolution rooted in in social media so the lady that taught me had learned from social media and there were forty thousand of them and now there are hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people low carb around the world and then the primary health the primary health care physicians have been noticing patients doing well and then they're getting interested and i'm finding really very large numbers of people in primary care are showing an interest in this and it is genuinely grassroots as it sort of bubbles up from uh, ordinary people into GPs. And um, I sometimes wonder if the specialists are going to be the last people to really uh, see what's going on. Just back to psychology before we move on, something that Jen taught me. I, I, I used to think that I was using psychology because I used to threaten my patients. So that was, you know, I used to scare them with well you know negative so i used to scare them with well of course it's okay to do what you want but i you know i won't don't blame me if you die sort of thing we call that shroud waving in general practice and what i'd missed was that threatening people or what jen taught me is for instance the hope of putting your diabetes into remission coming off medication is a wonderful shining hope And it's a lot more powerful to give people hope than it is to give them fear of death, amputation, all those things. And I actually just realized how much we are skipping all over the place around the world playing this game of where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. Kind of funny. We are heading down to New Zealand now to hear from Dr. Karen Zinn, who discovered a low-carbohydrate and ketogenic diet in a very surprising way and is now practicing that way and really sharing her message with those around her. I thought this was a really unique story, so let's hear from Dr. Karen Zinn. You know, in a small country like New Zealand, um, you know, when you look at the stats, um, Obesity is the, the third. It's the the third um, highest obesity rate, or it's third country with the highest obesity rate in, in the world. And type two diabetes is is very much um, very much just behind there. We, we're catching up very very quickly in that space. And um, and it is the you know when you look at the demographics, you look at the the ethnicity breakdown. It is the the um, the, the groups like the Maori and Pacific Island, the indigenous groups that are disproportionately affected. And, you know, there's a reason for that. There's so many different reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is that is that particularly the, the Maori people, they, they don't necessarily um, align with the same way of health delivery um, as, you know, New Zealand European um, people do. So, you know, we, we get sick, we go to the doctor um, and, we, we get fixed or sometimes we don't get fixed or whatever. But for some of the indigenous people, there's a, there's a bit of a lack of trust in the Western way of doing things. And, um, you know, you go to the doctor and you've got 15 minutes. I mean, what, what is that even, what is that about? 15 minutes. What can you do in 15 minutes? And um, as a, like that is um, one of the, one of the many, many reasons um, why indigenous groups can't really get ahead um, is because they they use different 
um, philosophical models of health. And we need to really, really change things up if we want to get some traction in terms of reducing inequalities um, and improving the situation. So there's a lot of work to do in the general space, but also um, even more work to do in this kind of um, in indigenous space. And I think that's echoed in in, in different countries in the world and in Australia as well. I was just thinking that it sounds like the same kind of racial inequalities that are happening all over the planet in, in many places, but maybe just for slightly different reasons. You know, mm -hmm. I, here in America, maybe it's, you know, that the African-American community and the black community, you know, we we've completely lost trust, you know, with, with the public health message here because of the, the, horrible history of public health with minorities. And so, you know, maybe it's a slightly yeah. different reason, but um, it sounds like something that's really pervasive around the world. It is. And, you know, even if you don't necessarily agree with it, um, you might say, oh, just come on, just go to the doctor and get yourself some help. It's all, it's accessible to everyone. So that's the key. We think it's accessible to everyone, but if, if it doesn't align with their philosophies, it's not accessible and they're that's not right. going to, you, you know, that they're not going to take up, the opportunities that are that are provided there. So whether it's right or wrong or whether you agree with it or not, that is the reality. We need to work quite differently to to get some good outcomes, yeah. I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I look at somebody like, you know, uh, a day fox um, known as the black carnivore here in America or Dr. Tony Hampton. These people have embraced the low carbohydrate message and now they're out sharing it and they have a different voice than I have. It's, it's very different, you know, if you're mm -hmm. in that community to hear the message from me than it is for them. And so the more people that can help embrace that message for their, you know, community, I think is so helpful. Absolutely. And there's a big drive here at the moment to um, increase the Indigenous workforce, uh, particularly in, in the area of health coaches. So it makes a lot of sense to have, um, to have people going into their own communities, talking to their own people in their own language with their own analogies and philosophies and things um, and, and getting traction. So I think the whole, to be honest, I think the whole health delivery system is is broken in, well, in, in New Zealand for say type two diabetes anyway, but potentially in the rest of the world as well. And um, we've been really lucky enough. I've been putting in research grants for, <clears throat> for years and years and years and well, since 2016, I've been putting in this research grant about low carb and diabetes. And it's finally 2022, it's finally been um, granted. So we've just got some money from the government for the Health Research Council to look at the way the delivery of um, services in primary care, so at, at the medical centers, is delivered in the area of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So we're going to be evaluating some some work that we've been doing with with various GPs around the whole kind of uh, low carb space and community facing and supportive initiatives space. And we're going to evaluate that and then roll it out to a bigger region and do a big evaluation there, compare it to the, the kind of standard practice and, and then see how it goes and hopefully roll it out to as much of New Zealand as, um, as that, that wants it. And these medical centers that we've been working with, they've been employing health coaches. So everyone gets a, a role. You know, the doctor has a certain role. The health coach has a more hands-on role by, you know, taking taking the community to the supermarket, doing cooking demonstrations, being responsive to them on text, on call, um, whenever they need to. So I just think everyone's got a role to play, but it's just... We're working on an old system to try and fix these new problems. Wow. 
Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I I very often get very discouraged by how slowly this is moving, but I am starting to hear more and more that things are moving forward just a little bit. Even things like, you know, the American Diabetes Association, I believe it was 2019, for the first time at least acknowledged that low carbohydrate could be a possibility to use, which is all anybody in this world that I know is is asking for. So maybe there's maybe we've turned a corner. Maybe the momentum has gained, you know, so much ground that now it can actually move forward a little faster than it was in the past. You are exactly right. And, um, you know, America does lead the way. And, you know, if, if, if the American um, guidelines or the diabetes guidelines or the diabetes agencies endorsed low carb and, and even extreme low carb, so essentially ketogenic diets, as the, the most efficacious way to reduce HbA1c and reduce medication um, in, in, in patients with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, the rest of the world sits up and listens and goes, oh, oh, okay, well, there must be something to this. And then, you know, other countries around the world suddenly are, are coming around. So now, you know, when I used to do talks for health professionals and communities eight years ago, the first half an hour, you'd have to spend trying to convince them why it was a good idea. And now the talks are about how do we best incorporate this to get the best outcomes? Because it's, like I said, it's it's almost like mainstream. It is adopted as one of, um, one of the therapeutic tools to use for those who, who want to and, and those who embrace it. So we've, I think we have Definitely come a long way, considering, as you say, that the snail's pace that um, guidelines usually move at. Um, but even just, you know, New Zealand's a small country, and when I get um, clients, so, so I've got a clinical practice as well. When I get clients, I always ask them um, how they how they got to me or, or how they were referred to me, and they go, "Oh, you know, my, my doctor referred me. Oh, who's your doctor?" And they mention the name. And in the old days, I would know all the doctors who would refer. A, a, a client to, to me to do low carb, but now I've never heard of these names. So it is definitely, definitely moving at a reasonable pace um, in New Zealand anyway. So it's, it's very, very pleasing to see. Our next clip features Martha Tettenborn, taken from episode 279 of Balanced Body Radio, called Hacking Chemo. This is a really interesting story that I wanted to include. We have talked to lots of different cancer researchers who do research on work on the ketogenic diets. Basically, cancer cells can only use glucose or glutamine as a fuel source. They really can't use ketone bodies. And so there's a lot of great research going on right now on ketogenic diets and their effect on not only cancer itself, but also as an adjunct for some of the treatments. And And again, when we are hosting those people, I'd love to ask the question, like, since you do research in the ketogenic diet, what would you do today if you were given a diagnosis of cancer? And it's really interesting to kind of go through that mental activity and and hear what somebody might think they might do if they got that diagnosis. Well, Martha actually got the diagnosis, and we're going to hear now her story and what she learned about how she could manage her symptoms. So if you have cells in your own body that are reproducing actively or growing, um, then they are also going to get hit by the chemotherapy. So that's things in an adult, we're not growing actively most of the time, but things like um, our hair follicles are always growing. Um, The bone marrow is producing blood components. So it's always creating red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, your immune system, that kind of thing. 
the lining of your GI tract is always um, refreshing and regenerating itself. So those are areas of of fairly rapid growth, even in a non-growing adult, right? And that's why chemotherapy side effects means you lose your hair, you have mouth sores, you have GI problems, uh, your immune system is suppressed, your blood values are suppressed. Those are the side effects. So if you can quiet down your healthy cells, I call it stealth mode. (laughs) They go into stealth mode. Um, Then the chemotherapy, when it's infused into your body, it misses them. It literally doesn't see them and it just passes right over and heads for those cancer cells with the big red flashing lights that are going like, pick me, pick me, because they are still actively um, trying to grow. And so it made a huge difference to side effects. I was, I am so incredibly drug naive. Like, I mean, I barely take a Tylenol. I, you know, other than vitamin D in the winter, I take nothing. And so for me to take chemo was like, mentally and emotionally and physically it was going to be a really big deal and um and so when i realized that i could possibly impact on my my chemo side effects by actually just fasting like something as simple as fasting um i decided i was going for it so i did i i developed i based on Dr. Longo's work and the studies he had released and and the case study reports he had done, because he did a case series of about 10 patients in 2009 that he published. Um, I decided that I was going to fast for 36 hours prior to my chemo. So that would quiet down my healthy cells. And then I was going to stay fasted for 24 hours after my chemo um, to keep them quiet while that active drug was in my system in its most potent sort of brand new form. Right. So for me, that ended up being about a 72 hour fast. I had two, two chemo drugs. One was put in intravenously and the other was put in inter intraperitoneally, which means it was basically put in through a port and just poured right into my abdominal cavity where it swished around for a few days until it was all absorbed. Um, Because of the type of cancer I had, that made a lot of sense. And I was of the, you know, my thought at this point was, I'm only doing this once. So hit me with your best shot. Like, if that's the best way to go, like, let's do it. Um, So my chemo treatments ended up being about eight hours long instead of just being in and out. Um, And I had to drive to the large cancer center, which is about three hours from where I live. Um, And that meant staying overnight. So we do the clinic visit, the blood work, the clinic visit, the chemo, everything was all done in one long day. And then we'd have to drive three hours home. And it was winter in Ontario. (laughs) So every three weeks, we'd have this adventure driving driving down to the cancer center. But my response to it, even from the very first chemo, was stunning. It's the only way I can describe it. Um, I experienced no uh, minimal, almost no nausea, never threw up, not once in six chemo treatments. And this was not expected for the, the treatment that I was having. Um, I had about four days of kind of low energy. I was never horizontal. I was, you know, I was never stuck in bed or any of that sort of stuff. I had a recliner in my living room um, and, you know, my little nest where I had my computer and my bits and my knitting and all the things that I wanted around me. 
And about every hour or two, I'd get up and I maybe just go make some bacon and eggs or I'd walk out to the mailbox or, I'd, you know, something like that. Just little excursions. And then when I got tired, I'd come back and sit in my chair. Um, and that was for about four days. And then, uh, then my energy would start coming back up again. And for about two, almost two and a half weeks, I would be pretty much normal. My wow. energy, I mean, I wasn't out running or anything, but I mean, my energy was normal. Wow. I was working a couple of days a week. Um, you know, I was socially active and uh, yeah, it was amazing. Wow. And each time that I had chemo was actually lighter in terms of side effects than the time before. And that's the opposite of what's expected with chemotherapy they are considered yeah they're considered to be cumulative right so it gets worse as you go along but they would give you drugs for after the chemo they give you anti-nausea drugs and the dexamethasone which is the you know the anti-inflammatory sort of steroid every treatment i took less of those after pills than the treatment before so by the time i got to the sixth treatment i was taking nothing after the night of chemo nothing (laughs) And I think I had th- of the, the PRN or the as needed nausea pills. I think I might've taken three of them in the entire six treatments. And it was always the Saturday morning, which was the day after I started eating again, right. Wow. During, during the fasting, nothing. Um, it was pretty amazing. That's incredible. I mean, I should, go ahead. So I, was, I should just say it wasn't a water fast. For anybody who's wondering, the the fasting protocol is in the book. It's also on my website. It's the first blog I ever did. Um, So it's like it's there for free. And if you put your email in my website, you get a download of the one pager of my fasting protocol. But basically, I used um, coffee, tea, um, bubbly water, and probably about two or three cups of bone broth through the entire 72 hours. That was really all I needed to kind of support, you know, particularly the day before chemo because I was feeling really terrific. So I still had an appetite. So that was the day I tended to use bone broth um, to kind of get me through that day. That's great. I'm really glad you pointed that out. People think fasting and they can't have anything ever. And it's like, no, you can have some things. You just want to stay in that kind of lower metabolic state, like you said, and then that fasted state, which certainly bone broth and coffee would support. You know, I've, I've only had a really good front row seat to cancer with my mom. So different context. And this was 20 years ago. And so obviously the treatments are way different, but what you're describing as far as your experience was absolutely not the experience that I witnessed. I mean, you always knew Mm -hmm. when the treatment day was because basically the bedroom doors would be closed for like the next two or three days. And we just kind of knew like they were very, my parents were very public about it, but you just kind of knew like that was your day where you had to kind of sort dinner out yourself. Mom was really nauseous. I remember them prescribing Oxycontin seventies, which I believe at least at the time was like the strongest painkiller that you could absolutely recommend. And I remember them telling her specifically, like when, when she was under a tremendous amount of pain, just to chew them so that they would quick release in the body. So you can imagine like that's, not ideal, not great. No. Um, and I, I remember the, the bouts of nausea and, and all those things that came along with it. So that's really interesting. I think it's interesting to point out too, you're not necessarily suggesting that fasting and a low carbohydrate diet is like, this is the cure. This is the end all be all. You just have to do this. Oh no. You're recommending no. this is a very nice adjunct that can go with this that might help the response. And so it's not that you're throwing away all the conventional cancer treatment. You're using this to 
together for a benefit. I think that's a, a, a really important context to look at this. Oh, no, this is not a cure. This is a way to deal with side effects. Like I, for the rest of the cancer treatment period, the time I was on chemo, I did maintain a strict ketogenic diet and I tested my ketones and, and, um, you know, I was in ketosis, at least mild ketosis for the whole time. My blood sugar stayed nice and low the whole time. Um, except when I had to take the pre-chemo dexamethasone. Oh my God, that stuff like would put my sugar up into diabetic range. Wow. But at the same time, my ketones would be like well up into the threes and fours and stuff because I had, I was already well into my fast at that point. Right. Um, so that was just weird watching my blood sugars go, you know, crazy with the dex. But, uh, yeah, it, I, I will say I never missed a meal that I didn't plan to miss. Wow. Not once. And I never missed making the meals because in my house, that's my job. I like it. And so, like I say, sometimes I just make bacon and eggs for supper. That's all we'd end up having. But, you know, that's okay. My, you know, an hour later, my husband would get up and have his bowl of organic breakfast cereal, which is his typical evening snack. And, uh, you know, so he added in the extra carbs when he wanted. But, um, yeah, I, I was really in control for the whole time. That's fantastic. And it is so different. And that's, that's what I really want people to know. Like you can, you can have an impact, not only that, but emotionally and mentally, it is so empowering to know that you have some control over this situation. You are not, you know, just a victim of these horrible poisons and this, you know, someone says, this is what you have to do. And and you just blindly go, you know, okay, here I am cut me open or whatever, um, that you have options and you have things you can do that will really impact on your journey. I think you'll understand why I saved this for the very last story that we're going to share with you in this episode. This is our returning guest, Dr. Mark Kukazella. He has been featured in three of our episodes, uh, episodes 25, episodes 40, and this, the most recent clip, is taken from episode 327. I just want you to listen to this story and listen to how much compassion he shows his patients. I mean, I, I've never had one of my doctor's cell phone numbers, for example. I could never, like, text them, and I, I, I don't know many doctors that would like seriously like work through their lunchtime to make sure somebody got the treatment and care that they needed that Mark is showing here. He's such a wonderful example and a wonderful human being. And I thought this would be a great place to conclude this episode. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times people don't know what it feels like to feel good. But then when they think back, they're like, oh, it makes sense now. Yeah. You know, so for, uh, you know, here, just share a case because I think it um, pulls out everything with what, you, you know, what we talked about even before we got on, you know, about caring for people and compassion. So I had a patient I saw yesterday, um, one of my urgent care colleagues, you know, texted me and said, you know, you know, can you see this patient? He came in for a urinary tract infection and uh, he was wise enough. He saw he was spilling a bunch of sugar in the urine, 57 year old guy, and he'd lost about 30 or 40 pounds in the last couple of years not intentionally. So he drew, he couldn't get it immediately. So he drew a hemoglobin A1C on the patient, which is an average blood sugar. And his value came back 24 hours later, greater than 14, greater than 14. So, so meaning wow. his blood sugar the last three months, at least were greater than 400 at least, but greater than 15, like what's the ceiling. 
And so this guy actually calls my, my clinic and someone at the front staff says, I'm not taking patients and they turn him away, which right there is not good. So he goes to his uh, regular primary doc and the, the primary doc doesn't even check his sugar, um, sent, sends him on his way with some more blood tests, doesn't teach him glucometer. I mean, here's a guy who walks in with a hemoglobin A1C greater than 14 and they don't even check his sugar in the regular clinic. That's crazy. Um, it's crazy. Like, you know, you're like, that's crazy. They just send him on his way. And you're like, and I just call him. I say, look, you know, my colleague at the urgent care thought you'd be a good person to see. Can you come in this afternoon? He says, well, I just saw my doc. Uh, you know, I think I'm good. And I'm, and I, you know, em- empathetically and just, you know, it, no one's right or wrong here. I said, well, look, I've reviewed your stuff and I, I'm concerned you may have type one diabetes. You know, your A1C is greater than 14 and you're losing weight. You know, did, this morning, did they test you for an insulin level, a C-peptide? And he's like, no. Did they talk to you about insulin? And he's like, no. Did they tell you to check your sugar? He's like, no. And so he and so we'll come in and we'll, we'll just, let's sort this out because, um, yeah, you, you need help. So he comes in and certainly he doesn't know anything. He's a former Air Force guy. And this guy had actually been in an ER in 2019 with a sugar of 300 and a fungal urinary infection, which means it's high sugar and he was sent out with an antifungal medicine no addressing of his sugar of 300 so he's been massively diabetic for probably at least walking around and so you know we we got him in we taught him insulin therapy and uh, this is how the system it's like you know we talk about swiss cheese model casey you know but we have big holes in our medical system so i mean you just heard a few holes there it's like failure to diagnose something that needs to be diagnosed immediately and a severe you're walking around with a sugar of 500 your body's an immediate risk like you could rupture a plaque you're at immediate risk in the next 24 hours and we let these people out the door they try to make an appointment administrative burdens oh there's no appointments right they don't call the doc or anything they just turn people away and then they see someone who doesn't understand what they have doesn't do the right thing and the patient thinks they're getting the right treatment but they're not it's not the doc's fault. It's not the patient's fault. I mean, there's, I mean, this is like why we train. I have medical students with me every day. So they, they're like, wow, that's like, now they will never miss that. Yeah. So we teach him insulin and we call into his pharmacy, you know, the, electronically and they deny the prescription. They don't call you or anything. Here's a guy who needs insulin now. Pharmacy denies the prescription. The patient, you know, they all have my text message, right? Because without that, they have to call front desk, right? And good luck getting through. Option seven, leave a message. So he's like, they denied my insulin. I'm like, what? <laughs> so we go, and, and the reason they denied it, so I had my staff call quickly seeing someone else. And, oh, they, they only fill one month at a time. So they didn't tell us that. They just denied it and sent them packing. So we put in one month. Okay, so we go back and put in one month. And I say, I know this is going to get fucked up, right? I'm sorry if I said that. You can bleed it out. So I call the pharmacy. And we actually call in pen needles, too. The, the insulin valves need these little pen needles. And so I call the pharmacy just to verify, okay, it's cool. Were you covering it? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we have it ready for him. And I'm like, what about the needles? He's like, well, no, we don't have any needles. And I'm like, what? You're going to give him insulin without the needles. Oh, we have to order those. I'm like, I know you are a pharmacy. So, I mean, like, I didn't say this to him, but okay, you're going downrange, Casey. You're a Marine. We're going to give you your weapon, but not the... Uh, not the the bullets, right? Right. right. <laughs> like, good luck. Yeah, we're like good luck. You know, have a nice day. And I'm like, no, you have needles there somewhere. And he's okay. Let me look. And about two minutes later, because oh yeah, we found him a few. 
I'm like, we're not helping people, right? Like they were going to give the guy the insulin without the pen needles. It blows my mind. It blows your mind. And this, and like, it shouldn't have to be that way. But because, I mean, he's texting me, thank you, you know, thank you. I didn't go above and beyond and do anything extraordinary. All I'm doing is trying to help people have their human right fulfilled. You know, if you have diabetes, it's your human right to get care and what you need to help your diabetes. And if we have administrative burdens, barriers, you know, pharmacies, people that just don't want to help. And I think as clinicians too, you know, I, I think it's easy for us just to pass the buck of blame. Oh, the insurance companies suck. The pharmacies suck. The administration is no good. No, it's on us, right? Like all that stuff will never get better, right? We live in America, our healthcare system. If you're waiting for some wonderful new system that's going to be patient-centered, and that's what the medical students see, they say, look, this. I hope you learned something from this. Don't complain about the insurance companies, the pharmacies. Just do the right thing for the person in the room and you'll sleep better at night. And until there's some better system, that is the way it is. So that concludes this episode of the Balanced Body Radio premium podcast, all about keto and the personal stories that our healthcare workers have gone through to be able to find this diet and how they have practiced medicine in this way after discovering this way of life. I just, it was so much fun to go back and listen to all of these episodes. There were many more that we could have included and more stories that we could have told. I really loved these 12 and wanted to select them. I was very fortunate in my career, being a personal trainer, I was not held to the same standards as some of these medical professionals are, if somebody wanted to listen to me about how to work out or about how to eat, you know, as a nutrition coach, I'm not really under the same, you know, kind of guidelines that a dietitian is or that some of these medical professionals are. And so I just really have a huge amount of respect for all of them, including the three that we heard from that actually had legal actions brought up against them. So again, go back and listen to these original episodes. They're very, very good. There's lots of tips and tricks on ways to do this yourself. The last episode that we are going to do on ketosis for now is going to be more stories, but it's going to be more of the lay people, people that have been overweight or struggled with lots of crazy conditions that were then able to deal with and treat their conditions through low carbohydrate diets. I think their stories are wonderful as well. I just wanted to give this perspective from the medical community itself. So be looking for that next episode of the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. And as always, thank you so very much for your support. Thank you so very much for listening to this special episode taken from the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. If you haven't already, please follow our show on Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and review on that platform as it is the best way to continue to get our message out to new people all over the world. And as we said in the introduction, feel free to book a 30-minute complimentary session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com so we can discuss your health and fitness goals and help you come up with a plan. Thank you so very much, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.